According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 12 as we get started. We're going to be in all three synoptic gospels this morning, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew chapter 12, 15 through 21, Mark 3, 7 through 12, and Luke 6, 17 through 19. We get into episode 15 in the Galilean ministry, the uh, healing of the multitudes. Before we begin any of this, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we're filled with the Spirit. Distractions can be set aside. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble together this morning. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us. We Commit this time to your hands for the glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray that we might be here uh, for the right reasons, with the right attitude. And we just thank you for, again, honoring us with the truth of your word, allowing us the privilege of, of studying to show ourselves approved. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, We'll go as long as we can this morning before uh, I, I feel overwhelmed. I thought that a uh, Sudafed would help, and it does. It clears out the congestion, and it gets me all, I guess my voice back anyway, but it leaves me so spacey that uh, I'm not sure I can think clearly. So uh, if I start to wander off topic and kind of leave the Bible and start venturing into realms of baseball or camping or something like that, just you know, wave or let me know I'm off track, and I'll either uh, notice your uh, your signal or, and correct my course, or I won't, in which case we'll just kind of blabber on about who knows what. We are in episode 15, and I expect 15 to go very quickly, and 16, um, back to back. Episode 15 is this, Healing of the Multitudes. Episode 16 is the Selection of the Twelve Apostles. That one will take us a little while. Uh, I don't expect that we'll you know, dedicate a month to each disciple and spend forever on each one. I, I think we'll give an overview for all 12 of them and then simply allow them to... Uh, allow them to be developed as we encounter them throughout the remainder of the story. We've already encountered uh, the four fishermen. We've already encountered Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We've already seen uh, uh, Nathaniel and Philip from John chapter 2. So we are familiar with a couple of them anyway at this point, six of them. We saw the call of Matthew, so we've seen more than half. Uh, we'll get all 12 of them coming up here, though, in episode 16, and then we'll let the rest of it go until we see them throughout the uh, remainder of this study. Let's uh, take a look at Matthew 12. We have last week concluded the uh, third of the three uh, Sabbath controversies. We had the healing of the man by that pool at Bethesda in John chapter 5. We had the plucked grain controversy and then followed by the withered hand controversy. All of these taking place right here in this context of Matthew chapter 12. We move on now. We start to uh, notice here in verse 15... Well, just before that, notice how the hostility is growing from verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And it's in the context of that opposition that this episode takes place. It is a retreat. It is a withdrawal. And we'll have some comments on that here shortly. Uh, but notice the conflict and the hostility in verse 14. 
Verse 15 now, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And we'll spend some time in Isaiah today, chapter 42, as well as uh, chapter 61 and some other places to demonstrate how the Old Testament gets quoted in the New Testament and how uh, scripture fulfillment uh, is manifest. So this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. We'll stop the reading there with verse 21 because we plunge into another episode with uh, with verse 22. We'll do the Mark and the Luke accounts shortly. I'm going to we've done different approaches on this on on some of the events. We've gone ahead and read all three accounts at the very beginning and then plunged into the notes. I'm going to do it differently this time, though, because the three Gospels are almost all exclusively different. And we'll have some comments on that as well. Let's start. Simply with point one, this episode bears more content than a passing than passing observations might allow. This episode bears more content than passing observations might allow. I was tempted weeks ago when first glancing at this that this would be a very short episode. We'd probably just glance at a couple items and thrust right on to episode sixteen, the selection of the twelve apostles. But the more that I started looking at it, I realized there is some real depth here in this passage. And if we just blow it off as simply a, a, a passing comment or a transition or, uh, you know, in so many commentaries you read, this, this basically is simply a hinge leading to the selection of the Twelve Apostles and the Sermon on the Mount. And sure, I'm eager to get to the selection of the Twelve Apostles and the Sermon on the Mount. But this is more than just simply a passing comment. There are some very important doctrinal considerations we can learn from this text. And I was admonished by the scripture that says all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That includes passing passages like this one. Especially since we have grown accustomed to thinking of the Gospels in two ways. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We understand the four Gospels, but we have really grown accustomed to the synoptic Gospels on the one hand, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John on the other. And through how many episodes now? I mean, this is the the 15th in the Galilean ministry, but we had 12 in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We had four with John the Baptist. We had 17 with the birth narratives. So we've we've done 50 episodes so far. Uh, we've really come to appreciate how Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really parallel. They contain most of the same information. They're quite similar in their presentations. And it's typically it's only in minor details where Matthew, Mark, and Luke pretty much differ from one another. In this episode, though, it's, it's striking because it's not just the minor details that differ here. In the three synoptic gospels, we're effectively getting three um, different uh, records. And, and that is extraordinary and we'll talk about that here notice i say different i don't say contradictory sub point a the synoptic gospels are remarkably different in what they record you know there's a reason why matthew mark and luke are called synoptic it's uh it's like uh sin you know in terms of synchronized or or sympathy or, or other sin or soon 
uh, prefixes. It means together, optic, where you're looking at something, right? So this is a, a the synoptic gospels are three gospels that basically look at uh, Christ in a synchronized manner. They basically look at the life of Christ with a similar view, and they by and large do record the identical stories and so forth. Uh, and the details tend to be minor rather than major. In this episode, though, the, the three accounts are quite distinct, and that makes it interesting. Makes it uh, something that grabs your attention to say, oh, wait a minute. Something's going on here because it was vital enough for all three of these evangelists now to record uh, separate details with respect to the event. So point B, the particular episode they describe is likely typical of many such episodes throughout the Galilean ministry. We're going to have to comment upon this here in a moment. This is a typical episode. In other words, they're describing a healing. They're describing multitudes being healed. But this is not the only time this happened. This is likely something that happened uh, repeatedly. It'd be like uh, somebody describing a Wednesday morning ladies class at Austin Bible Church. See, and you might have three different people. I could pick out three people here in the audience today and say, write me a paragraph about this morning's class. Now, chances are the three authors would, uh, even though they're writing about the same event, the same class, they're not going to be identical records. They're all going to be, they'll have variances. They'll have shades of differences just based upon what they observed, what, what impacted them, what they thought was important. And so that's where we find uh, the, the congruity or the harmony between the three synoptic gospels. But you would be describing not only this class, but given that this is a class that happens every week, uh, you'd be describing an event that happens with some regularity, an event that would be typical of a larger series of events. So uh, healing multitudes and casting out demons and and uh, you don't have demons in the Matthew text. You do in Mark uh, healing of the multitudes, casting out demons, warning people to uh, to keep his identity quiet, things like that. Uh, we're going to start seeing more and more of it. So um this is going to be typical as well as particular, and we want to understand both sides of it. Particular refers to the one incident being described, but typical paints the broader picture of the multiple times that undoubtedly this, uh, this type of event took place. So it's particular and typical. It's an observation we want to make. And also, when we, whenever you record something like that, invariably, if it is typical, invariably, if there are several such episodes that were quite similar to one another, invariably, you'll start to uh, incorporate elements from other episodes and you import them into this one. See, that's simply a, a, a pattern of, of human writing that will take information or details or supplementary information and put it into one episode that's being described. And there's a term for that. If I wasn't on a Sudafed, I might even remember it. There's a, there's a technical term for that where it's af information known after the fact is plugged into a present narrative, so to speak. Um, and I forget now what the, there is a term for that. But anyway, we'll, uh, we'll see some of those uh, aspects as we get to them. Also take note that the principles contained in this episode establish context for subsequent episodes. We already noted the hostility. You've got to keep that hostility in mind because it explains what's happening here and it also explains what's about to start happening, namely picking out 12 of these guys. All right? Because he's got dozens. He's got 
possibly several hundred that are now starting to surround him. And he's calling them disciples. They're calling themselves disciples. Uh, they are legitimate disciples because they're learners, they're students. But he's going he's gonna to appoint 12 of them. And that's coming up. The principles contained in this episode establish context for subsequent episodes. And we're going to see some quite startling uh, patterns unfold, including more and more hatred on the part of these Pharisees who really do want him dead. Uh, they're not going to succeed for a couple more years, but they really do want him dead. We've just wrapped up a Passover episode. There is uh, one more Passover to go, which he will not participate in. He will stay outside of Jerusalem. He will feed the 5,000. He will uh, participate elsewhere rather than going to Jerusalem and going to the temple. And then the year after that is the Passover of his crucifixion. And so uh, they're still two years away from when they're going to be able to crucify him, but they want him dead right now. And uh, hopefully we won't miss that or miss some of the, the uh, context in these episodes as they're coming up. All right, under point two, we have Matthew's account. Anybody want to guess what we'll look at under point three or point four? You can anticipate we'll have Mark's account. Under point three, and we'll have Luke's account under point four. Well, let's start with Matthew's account, since that's the text we've already read in verses 15 through 21. First of all, this episode begins with a withdrawal. So subpoint A, this episode begins with a withdrawal. Reading from Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15. The episode begins with a withdrawal. And you say, well, that's a defeat. Why is he running away from his problems? Say, doesn't, doesn't he have any backbone? Shouldn't he stand up to him and fight? Okay. Well, now, remarkably, we saw some of that in the episode immediately preceding this with the withered hand. Remember, that was a head-to-head -head confrontation which took place prior to the actual miracle where the, the hostility with the Pharisees was such that they got right in his face and, and it, it was a line in the sand, so to speak, even before the miracle took place. And he performed the miracle anyway. And so there was that head-to-head -head confrontation that, you know, I guess some believers crave for. You know, they just thrive on it. Yeah, give me a good fight. You know, I guess maybe that's a humanity thing and possibly a, a sin problem or a bit of legalism blended in. Who knows what it is. But, you know, there are believers who are convinced that simply fighting is serving the Lord just by virtue of fighting. They might even claim a scripture that says, fight the good fight, or earnestly contend for the faith, or so on and so forth. And it never dawns on them that it may be the will of God to walk away from that fight. See, because what are you really going to accomplish anyway, when it comes right down to it? This is a withdrawal. The verb is anachoreo, A-N-A-C-H-O-R-E-O, anachoreo, A-N-A-C-H-O-R-E-O, anachoreo, number 402 if you have a Strong's Concordance and you pursue your word studies on the basis of the Strong's Concordance numbers, ana, koreo, it's a compound verb. Koreo could stand all by itself, but ana koreo uh, becomes a compound verb. We've been studying some of those lately in our Greek classes. Um, and it truly is a, you could, you could water it down and simply call it a departure, but departure really misses the story because with anakoreo, what you're really doing is you are escaping. You are getting away from something. In other words, there's a motivation for why you're departing. 
It's not just simply, well, you know, departing for no reason whatsoever. There's a reason for the departure, and it may be one of danger, maybe one of fear, maybe one of anything, but there's a motivation for the departure. In other words, now is a good time to, to, to get out of there. Okay? It is a verb we've already studied when we examined it in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 14. When they escaped to Egypt, Herod was going to come and murder all the babies. Jesus was born in the manger, and the, within two years, the wise men came to visit. And, uh, and uh, Herod had ascertained that the, the, the time frame for when the star appeared and so forth, and he'd given orders that all those babies were going to be murdered. And so... Um, the text for this is in Matthew chapter 2, and I think we don't need to turn there. We're familiar with the story. But Matthew 2.14, we have the verb anakoreo, where Joseph took his wife, took his son, and in the middle of the night, they departed. Okay, And I think departed is, is a wishy-washy way to say it. They escaped. They fled. You know, a departure is something that's done in broad daylight. It's It's like a plane departure or a train departure nothing secret about it it's scheduled it's planned you're taking a trip so you have a departure and it's going to be followed by an arrival somewhere and it's, it's all very wide open in my mind the word departure is kind of weak when the reality is they're creeping out in the dead of night they're escaping they're getting out of there hostility is growing and they are choosing that this is uh, an opportune time to be elsewhere and i really think that It'd be a good opportunity for believers to study and examine the, the not only the life of Christ, but we see it repeatedly in the life of David. You know, he, he certainly wasn't afraid of a fight. And he'd go toe-to-toe with a giant or fight, you know, he'd fight whatever. But there were plenty of times where it wasn't the will of God to stay in a fight. And David headed for the hills, went and camped in the cave somewhere and remained a fugitive for a number of years. So there is a biblical... And there is a doctrinal basis for fleeing in the proper conditions and circumstances. And um, that, uh, that's going to bear some future study for us. Now, under subpoint B, many, not told how many, but simply many, followed. And all, we're not told how many, but we are told all were healed. As we read this in Matthew 12 and verse 15, um, let's see, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all, warned them not to tell who he was. Many followed and all were healed. Remarkably, though, the location here is not totally clear. We'll get some more from Mark and Luke, perhaps, not so much with the geography, but as it pertains to the audience. That this is, going to be tip, this is going to be primarily a Gentile setting. And among those that follow, we find no record of any Pharisees following. We don't find any record of his critics or his enemies following. In other words, those that follow are those that are following with positive volition. Those that are following for the teaching. And those that are willing to go to a Gentile setting uh, in order to continue under the teaching, in order to... Uh, to be healed and so forth. It's interesting that the Pharisees were not willing to go. Wherever this setting was, the Pharisees weren't willing to go there. All right? And that could have been possibly outside of uh, the promised land or even within the promised land in certain towns, certain cities, certain homes. Remember, they wouldn't even go into Matthew's home. 
because he was a tax collector. And they wouldn't, uh, there were other places they wouldn't go and the, the harlots were coming and they were washing Jesus' feet and they wouldn't have anything to do with, with uh, certain people, certain homes, certain locations, even in their own cities. So it's likely that uh, they left Capernaum and went to either a Gentile district within Capernaum or they went to another city uh, like Tiberias or a city, another city on the Sea of Galilee that uh, these Pharisees just absolutely would not, have, uh, would not have participated in. We don't know, and so I guess the rest of that is rather, uh, is rather guesswork. And the numbers here are not certain as well. I, I think... We're still on the building pattern, though. We're going to see that up through the feeding of the 5,000. We're still going to see that the crowds are growing, growing, growing until such time as he finally says, look, uh, you can chase after miracles all you want, but at some point you've got to get serious with the teaching. And when he turned it to a teaching emphasis, then <laughs> the crowds went the opposite direction. They start dwindling, dwindling, dwindling until by the end he's left simply with the 12. Now under this, Subpoint one, immediate context will identify this crowd as mainly Gentile. Matthew was, the one thing that Matthew takes out of this episode, Jesus aware of this, withdrew from there, many followed him and he healed them there, healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. That itself is not extraordinary. Jesus was several times healing people and casting out demons and doing these other things. Uh, and we'll start to see a growing trend where he swears them to secrecy, where he says, don't breathe a word of this, don't, don't announce what's, what's happening here. That becomes more and more common. But what really strikes Matthew is the prophetic fulfillment. And he says that in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And uh, Matthew, being a good Bible student, understanding the, the book of Isaiah, he, he pinpoints this, he identifies this. But... The, the emphasis here, you'll see it in verse 18, you see it in verse 21. In both cases, it is the Gentiles. It is the nations that, uh, that Matthew highlights. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who the many are in verse 15. Most of them were not even Jews. They were Gentiles. Matthew doesn't necessarily record that. Matthew's, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's overwhelmingly a Jewish gospel, more so than Mark or Luke or John. He doesn't tell who the people are, but when he says this was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, twice when he cites that prophecy, it does mention the Gentiles or the nations. And and I'll use those terms interchangeably, Gentiles or nations, because they are interchangeable terms, both in the Greek text here and in the Hebrew text of Isaiah 42. But it says in verse 18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles or to the nations. Again in verse 21, in his name the Gentiles or the nations will hope. Those terms are interchangeable and by and large it's because the word Gentile basically means anybody that's not a Jew. Right? So it doesn't matter if they're French, English, Italian, Roman, you know, African, Arab, doesn't matter. If they're not Jewish, they're a Gentile. And if they're not Jewish and they're not a part of the nation of Israel, then what are they? They're some other nation. Okay, so the term Gentiles and the term nations are, for the Jews at least, synonymous and interchangeable terms. So immediate context will identify this crowd as mainly Gentile. And we'll have some more to say about that. Secondly, though, the Gospel of Mark specifically identifies Idumeans, Tyrians, and Sidonians. And we're going to look at Mark's account in a moment, but 
it fits with what Matthew's context is telling us. That the healing of these multitudes is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, which dealt with how the Christ would be received by the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, we're going to be there in a moment, but Isaiah 42 deals with how the Christ is going to be received by the Gentiles or the nations. Remarkably, the Christ, the Messiah, was the ultimate hope by the Jews. And yet, one of the things they didn't want to either admit or recognize or acknowledge was the fact that Gentiles also had expectations as pertains to the Jewish Messiah. All of humanity was waiting for the seed of the woman to come and to crush the serpent's head and provide for the eternal redemption of the answer to the sin problem. That's common to all humanity. That goes back to Adam and Eve. That's not a Jewish, you know, the sin problem is not limited to the Jewish people. Now, the Savior is going to be provided by the Jewish people, but the solution is offered to all humanity. Uh, All of man, as in Adam, all die. So sin is a human problem, not a Jewish problem. The provision comes through the Jewish people, but not simply limited to the Jewish people. Gentiles, likewise, were looking for the blessed hope. They were looking for the the seed of the woman to deliver them from the the sin problem. Uh, I think the Jewish people had other considerations as well, including a king. Um, And you can imagine, when when the word Messiah crossed their mind, what, what was the first thing they thought of? Okay? If, if there was a devout Jew who was um, conscious of his unrighteousness, who was very much um, humbled by his sinfulness and recognized that to be restored to a right relationship with Jehovah, he needed to, to have that imputed righteousness, well then, to him, Messiah would, would encompass Savior, would encompass redemption, would, would entail all those things. But to a Jew who was not devout, who was not aware of his unrighteousness, who really was primarily secular and worldly and not really all that wrapped up in getting religious, he might still have a a hope for the coming Messiah, but guess what? In his case, that coming Messiah was strictly political. The coming Messiah was, hey, look, we're the chosen people. We're, you know, we're Jehovah's favorite. We're going to run this place someday. And when Messiah comes, we're going to stomp on these Romans and we're conquering the world. Okay? And those two aspects of uh, the, the redemption aspect and the the conquering political aspect of the Messiah, uh, it's all one great big package as far as the Old Testament is concerned. All of that is caught up in the Messiah promises. But can you see how it would be all too human to go ahead and start compartmentalizing some of these things and ignoring the ones that don't really matter to you anyway and really stressing the ones that you're, you're thriving on? Okay. And, uh, and I find that extraordinary because the more we study this, the day and age in which these Jews were living and, and why it was they hated the Christ when he showed up. Because he didn't fit into the box that they tried to put him in before he got there. And uh, why it was that the, you know, the, the um, um, what am I trying to say? The <laughs> Sudafed moment. The, uh, the terrorist, the Jewish terrorist group of the day, the zealots. Thank you, Lord. Simon was a zealot. The zealot party was a terrorist party. We would to use today's vocabulary. In other words, they engaged in non-conventional guerrilla warfare tactics. Okay? 
Nowadays, we call that terrorism. It's nothing more than non-conventional guerrilla warfare tactics. Okay? We did the same thing in, in the Revolutionary War against the British. You know, the British wanted to line up in fancy lines with red coats and blue coats and, and fire muskets back and forth at one another. The Revolutionary Army figured out real quick, you know, that was kind of dumb. We'd lose. So let's just wear brown and green and hide behind trees and shoot here and there and all kinds of other things. Well, with today's vocabulary, we'd be called terrorists. They're just non-conventional guerrilla warfare tactics is all it is in a combat situation. And, well, the Sadducees, not the Sadducees, the um, Zealots were freedom fighters. They wanted to remove the yoke of Rome from over the Jewish people. And Simon was one of those, uh, one of the disciples we'll see coming up, was one of those party members. Now, where was I going with that? Somewhere. Uh, in this context, there are a lot of expectations for what the coming Christ was going to be all about, what the coming Messiah was going to be all about. And the, the Jews had a, a variety of expectations. But what's overlooked is the fact that Gentiles had expectations as well. We, we touched upon that when the Magi showed up with their gifts. They weren't Jewish, but they had expectations for what the king of the Jews was going to do on their behalf, and they worshipped him. They brought him gifts and submitted to him as a king, but they also worshipped him, submitting to him as God. The Magi had a Gentile perspective for what the Messiah was supposed to be. And likewise here, Matthew was really struck by the fact that, that they have opposition on the part of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now withdrawing or fleeing from a Jewish audience or a Jewish setting, the Lord finds himself now in a Gentile setting and the ministry just explodes, takes off. Wonderful things start happening. Multitudes are being healed. And Scripture is being fulfilled because the Lord is ministering to Gentiles. So we have it here. We have the immediate context under subpoint one. We made those observations from verse 18 and 21. We have the term Gentiles in both verses. We also have Mark's parallel that specifically identifies Idumeans, Tyrians, and Sidonians. Now, as far as the geography goes, we'll switch over to this. How about that? Let's go to... Does that work? No. There we are. Those were Sunday's hymns. We don't want to sing those. You probably have maps in the back of your Bibles. But notice something here. The um, Okay, here's the land of Israel, the Mediterranean, River Jordan, Sea of Galilee, River Jordan, Dead Sea. Okay, and here's Jerusalem, here's Galilee. Here's uh, Judea with the capital city of Jerusalem right there. You know, I never took an art class. Can you tell? All right. Now, what was in between Galilee and Judea? What was that region called? That no man's land right about here? Samaria, right. And the biggest problem with Samaria was that there were Samaritans living there. <laughs> it's kind of like it's the thing about Canada I hate the most is all those Canadians that live there. All right. Now, 
when you grow up in a northern border state, you get an exposure to such things. All right. The, uh, now, Idumeans, Tyrians, and Sidonians. Tyre and Sidon are up here. Tyre and Sidon. And they're, they're on the coast of Phoenicia. This strip of land right up here was uh, never, it was given to Israel, but they never conquered it in Joshua's conquest. They never occupied it. It remained in Canaanite hands throughout the Old Testament history and on into even New Testament times. Tyre and Sidon, uh, prominent cities of the Phoenicians, great traders, great uh, economic uh, uh, powers and so forth. Uh, now, it doesn't say where this escape takes place. And a lot of folks get that confused. There is a time coming up when Jesus will take a, a uh, withdrawal and he actually will go to the Syro-Phoenician region. He will go out here. He will heal uh, the daughter of, uh, of a woman when he gets there. Uh, but this event doesn't necessarily say that he goes to Tyre. He goes to uh, Sidon. It says that there are Tyrians and Sidonians present. So wherever he withdrew, people followed him and they were following him from some pretty distant places. Now, Idumeans were down here, south and east of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, eventually, here comes, and you've got the uh, Gulf of Aqaba here, the eastern branch of the Red Sea, like so. And the Idumeans were here primarily on the east side. Sometimes they had some settlements over here on the west side towards the Sinai Peninsula. But... That's quite a contrast from the Phoenician regions to the Idumean regions. And it really shows from north to south. It's almost like in the expression we have, one of the most common expressions we have in the Old Testament to describe the boundaries of Israel. It talks about all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Are you familiar with that phrase? It's used repeatedly in the Old Testament. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba basically gives the northern extremity Dan, the southern extremity Beersheba. And by giving the northern and southern extremities, it, it implies the totality of everything in between. And I think we have something remarkably similar here by referring to the Tyrians and Sidonians and the Edomians. In other words, by giving a north and south extremity that the Gentiles that are following after the Christ are more uh, numerous than we might otherwise think. Mark 3.8 specifically mentioning Idumeans, Tyrians, and Sidonians. The Idumeans, by the way, uh, are the Edomites from the Old Testament. It's simply the Latin term, the Roman term for the Edomites. They were called Idumeans. Nothing more than a Roman term for the Edomites. So they're half-brothers of the Jews. Uh, Edom was the half-brother. Esau was the half-brother of Jacob, or the twin brother of Jacob. Um, the Romans had a hard time telling, telling them apart, right? Um, of course, the Jews and the Edomites had no problem telling each other apart. They hated each other. <laughs> uh, Romans, though, got them mixed up. And, and part of the, the worst mistake they ever made with respect to that was they took Herod. King Herod the Great was an Edomian. And uh, the Romans decided to appoint him king of the Jews. Yeah, how... How well do you think that went over upon the real Jews? See, not not well at all. So if you want to do some study on King Herod sometime, Grace Notes has some remarkable historical information there. All right. So uh, Mark records who a lot of this crowd was. And Matthew, his emphasis is on the fulfillment of the prophetic record. The fulfillment of the prophetic record. Now, 
some point three, just as in the case of the Samaritan woman, remember that from John four and the men from the Samaritan town, the Jewish opposition is contrasted with Gentile recognition. Jewish opposition is contrasted with Gentile recognition. And it, I think the John 4 episode is very vivid in doing this, and I think that this Matthew 12 episode is just as vivid in doing this. Jewish opposition is contrasted with Gentile recognition. We had it... Uh, John 4, in fact, the whole chapter in John 4 was a withdrawal, was an escape. They uh, were leaving the region of Judah. They were headed up to Galilee, and they were in such a hurry to make their escape that they didn't even take the roundabout way they would normally take. They just plunged straight through Samaritan lands. And uh, they were in such a hurry to get through the Samaritan lands, they didn't even stop to buy food or provisions. They had to stop in a Samaritan town and try to buy food. So there's a lot of uh, details there in John 4 that give us the understanding that it was indeed an escape, that uh, their departure from Jerusalem was in, in some haste. But John 4:42, they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. See, those Samaritan Gentiles knew that the Messiah was the Savior of the, of the world, the Savior of the cosmos. And um, they have, and, and it's great because this woman immediately links it with this Messiah uh, principle. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. So this is indeed the Gentile perspective of the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Jewish opposition is contrasted with the Gentile recognition Interestingly enough. Point four, the Gentiles are warned to keep their testimony quiet. These Gentiles are warned to keep their testimony quiet. That bothers us sometimes. Because <laughs> we're under, we're under a, a great commission mandate here in the church. We, uh, we're expected to proclaim the excellencies of Christ anywhere and everywhere. The idea of keeping something quiet, Ooh, we don't like that. That smacks of uh, censorship, or that might seem somehow uh, to be, you know, why should I keep quiet? That sounds like uh, uh, persecution to me. What do you mean I can't testify about Jesus Christ? What do you mean I can't use the name of Jesus Christ? See, right now pastors in Indiana are being told that they, can't, they cannot refer to Jesus Christ by name or any other reference. They can't use, you know, Lamb of God. They can't use Son of God. They can't use... See, some of the pastors tried to get around the... They were put under a gag order. They couldn't use the word Jesus Christ in their prayers at the Indiana State Assembly. See, they're coming to open the State Assembly in, with a benediction, with prayer. And because of ACLU lawsuits and other things, a judge ruled that all prayers in the Indiana State Courthouse now, they can still be offered, but they cannot be in Jesus' name. So... Some uh, pastors started saying, in the name of the Lamb of God. See, well, judge came back and said, or you cannot use the name of Jesus or any other terms that are clearly limited or, or pinpointing that uh, Jesus Christ is the basis for your prayers. Some pastors are 
ignoring it anyway, and they're defying the court order, and they may go to jail for it. I don't know, but it's interesting. We get we we read a passage that says uh, he warned them not to tell who he was, and we, we we're not comfortable with that. We say, well, why are you keeping it quiet? What's the point? What are you doing? Well, he obviously has a reason for what he's doing, and think about it. The um, nature of his ministry is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Consider what the uh, Jewish opinion is towards Gentiles to begin with. They're rather prejudiced. They're rather opposed to Gentiles. Um, you might expect they are the chosen people after all. <laughs> uh, they are the followers of Jehovah in name, if not in reality. They uh, are superior to the Gentile people in concept, again, if not in reality. And at the moment, it's only the Pharisees that, that uh, are angry with the Christ and want him dead. But how quickly would that shift to just the common Jew on the street if it started to appear more and more that Jesus now was being supported by the Romans, by the Gentiles? See, it would very quickly um, shift things overwhelmingly to the Pharisee side and, and Jesus would be viewed as a traitor. He'd be viewed as, you know, a, a stooge or some kind of tool, somebody that the, the Romans were manipulating or somebody that the Gentiles were supporting and so forth. And they'd call him a traitor to his race. Different concepts there. Anyway, the, the Gentiles are warned to keep their testimony quiet. Not to tell who he was. And some of it may even also be part of the effort to, uh, to disappear for a little bit. You know? Get a weekend off. <laughs> Go somewhere and check into a hotel under an assumed name and don't tell him that this, that is me kind of thing. And it's, it's, it, the uh, actual impact of the verb here is not to tell who he was in terms of identity by name. Gives us, uh, gives us that idea. Now, subpoint C, Matthew's burden is to record this event and detail the Old Testament fulfillment. Matthew's burden is to record this event. You know, he only he gives three verses that records the event, and then he gives four verses on the Old Testament fulfillment. In fact, he quotes four verses directly from Isaiah 42. It's the longest such citation in the Gospel of Matthew, so far as uh, citation from Isaiah is concerned at any rate. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Cited in Matthew 12:18 through 21. Matthew's burden is to record this event in detail, the Old Testament fulfillment. Now, we've already read 18 through 21. I'll read it again, and then we'll go to Isaiah. There are differences, and uh, we'll des describe why that is. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. All right. Now let's turn back to Isaiah 42. Now, there's a number of different ways in which Old Testament passages get cited. They can be cited with a direct quotation. In other words, a word-for-word -word quotation. 
They can be quoted not only from the Hebrew text, but they can be quoted from the Greek text. Remember, 300 years before Christ, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. And uh, that was actually the more common Bible in Jesus' day because more people spoke Greek than spoke Hebrew anymore. And so it was very common for a lot of, of, of believers in Jesus' day to actually have a Greek Septuagint more than a Hebrew Old Testament. See, pretty much it was priests, scribes, and Pharisees were the folks that were still reading Hebrew anymore. And, and uh, the common Jew on, on the street was either reading Greek or reading Aramaic. So they're either reading the Septuagint or they're reading an Aramaic um, translation, an Aramaic Targum commentary and so forth. Uh, a lot of the Targums were being written, which were effectively Aramaic commentaries on the Hebrew text. That's what the Aramaic Targums were. Now, another way to quote the Old Testament was uh, a free paraphrase. In other words, an author is just simply quoting by memory. And even with a, in terms of a paraphrase, was interpreting as he paraphrased, giving his own interpretation to the citation. Now, we would be very leery of that if we did not also understand that, that the Holy Spirit is inspiring Matthew just like the Holy Spirit was inspiring Isaiah. So if there is a modification, if there is a change, so to speak, or an interpretation in a way, it's still sanctified because the Holy Spirit is recording Matthew the same time the Holy Spirit was recording Isaiah. Does that make sense? All right. Now, you and I, if we were to come along now, 2,000 years later, and make a change to Isaiah and bring it into and say, well, I'm just making this change based upon how I understand it, we're going to be real careful with that. Let's make sure we're not changing Scripture because today we're not recording new Scripture or certainly we're not speaking under verbal plenary inspiration. So let's look at Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Now, keep in mind that we have this section here from 40, 41, 42. Um, this is a, uh, the, the portion of Isaiah that's starting to plunge into themes of grace and salvation and, and so forth. Um, chapter 41 ended with a, a contrast with idols that uh, all these false gods are worthless and all these false prophets are worthless and and um, and that behold it says uh, in uh, chapter 41 29 behold all of them are false their works are worthless their molten images are wind and emptiness in other words idolatry is useless now behold my servant whom I uphold in contrast with every false idol ever around and all forms of religion, here comes the reality. My servant in whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. It was translated Gentiles in Matthew, you recall. Okay? In the Hebrew, it's goyim. You can render it either nations or Gentiles. Either way, it's fine. Likewise, in Matthew, in the, the text in, the, in uh, Matthew in the Greek is ethnos, or the plural ethnoi, same thing. You can call it Gentiles, you can call it nations, same word. Now, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. Cited that way in Matthew is how it appears here. The testimony, though, it's interesting, is his, uh, his acquiescence to the conflict. All right. He has opposition. The Pharisees hate him. The Pharisees try to destroy him. The Pharisees are slandering him. And so what does he do? Doesn't complain. Doesn't file a protest. Doesn't get in their face. He just simply turns and moves on. 
goes to where there's positive volition, teaches there. And what a pattern. Because, see, if he doesn't learn this now, how is he going to handle it during the Passion Week? How is he going to handle it when he's being beaten and whipped and scourged? All right? Because that's ultimately the pinnacle of where he has to keep his mouth silent. Where he has to accept the, uh, the uh, injustice against him. Where he's not crying out or raising his voice. So this episode, as I said, is indicative of episodes to come. And it's a part of his preparation for the cross. Or make his voice heard in the streets. See, some would be, if, if uh, they were faced with injustice or persecution, then, well, let's go grab some supporters. Make my voice heard in the street. Let's gather a, a rabble. Let's get a crowd together. Let's fight this injustice. No. He uh, simply moves on and turns to a Gentile audience, finds fruit where it can be born, and faithfully continues to minister. Now, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Uh, verse 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed. Uh, the direct citation now in Matthew leaves off part of this. Until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. In him the Gentiles will hope. Okay. Now Matthew makes a free, not really a quotation, but a free translation, a free interpretation. He's equating the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law with in him the Gentiles will hope. You see that? And he makes that free association based upon what he was observing in this episode. In episode 15, he's observing Gentiles waiting for their Christ, expecting and hoping for their healing. And they get their healing. And we're going to have to do some work on this. And in our time remaining, we should be able to do okay. First of all, Let's keep our Advent separated. Because we have something going on here, just like we had in Isaiah 61. There is a distinction which must be observed between first Advent and second Advent. Just as with the Isaiah 61, 1-3 fulfillment, there is a distinction which must be observed between first Advent and second Advent. Because, to be honest, most of Isaiah 42 is waiting for second Advent. Most of Isaiah 42 is waiting for the Lord to come in victory. To rule in Jerusalem. To establish eternally, to establish justice in terms of an earthly um, kingdom and, and the laws that are observed here on earth. And there's more to it here in Isaiah 42. And hopefully we can see this play out. Because it's hard to see in Isaiah in this chapter and subsequent chapters in chapter 61, we read through a text and boy, it seems like some of this is first advent, some of this is second advent, and it all seems to be blended. Okay? Precisely. It's all blended in the Old Testament. It's not until we get to the Gospels and it's not until we start to get to the Epistles that we start to see that rightly dividing the word of truth, we start to see that there is indeed a distinction to be made between first advent and second advent. Alright? So, Let's glance at this and then let's go over to Isaiah 61. And if we can't wrap this up in eight minutes, then we'll come back to this next week and, and try to make it more clear. 
Now, verse 42, uh, chapter 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. Now, I think we can all see elements of this that apply in first advent, right? When he was baptized, didn't the heavens open? Didn't the father say, behold, my son in whom I'm well pleased? Sure. Father testified to that verbally from the open heavens. Uh, I'll put my spirit upon him. Didn't the Holy Spirit descend as a dove land upon him at his baptism? Wasn't his public ministry begun with this verse? It really was. But then bringing forth justice to the nation. Stop to consider. Was that first advent? Did he, did he establish any kind of justice to the Roman Empire? Did he bring about any social revolution in his day? None at all. Okay. Some of this is waiting for when he does return to rule. When he returns to establish the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. Okay. But bringing forth justice to the nations, uh, you could think of justice in terms of earthly justice, but you could also think of justice in terms of eternal justice. Imputed righteousness, justifying the, the nations by virtue of his sacrificial death on the cross to justify the many. So we have shades of both first advent and second advent throughout this verse. Verse 2, he will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. That all perfectly acceptable for first advent. He, he came in humility. He accepted his suffering. He um, endured the suffering, despising the shame even to the point of death on the cross, who for the joy set before him endured the suffering, despised the shame. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Now, let me ask you something. Uh, this bruised wheat reed and this dimly burning wick, um, what, what's that referring to? Matthew says it refers to the Gentile audience. In him the Gentiles will hope. And when it comes down to it, in, in first advent, the Gentiles weren't bruised. The Gentiles weren't dimly burning. Gentiles were thriving. Gentiles had firmly had the Jewish people under their yoke. The Jewish people had been under the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. Now they're under the Romans. There's no sight of the, of the Gentiles being bruised, or there's no sight of the Gentiles' flame almost going out. Okay? The Gentiles are still thriving. First advent. Ultimately, what's going to happen here is this is descriptive of what in the tribulation is going to start hitting these Gentile nations. Where they truly are going to be bruised and battered and smashed. It's only at the end of Armageddon, at the end of the tribulational age, that these Gentiles can truly be observed as being uh, a bruised reed and a dimly burning wick. I mean, they're on the verge of extinction. So what's Christ going to do when he comes back at second advent, when he conquers at Armageddon? Is he going to crush that bruised, uh, is he going to break the bruised reed? Is he going to take the battered Gentile nations and just finish them off? No. He's going to tenderly embrace that remnant and bring them into the millennial kingdom as Gentile nations. Same thing with a dimly burning wick. Not going to plunge them out and extinguish them forever. He's going to rescue that remnant of the, the Gentiles and tenderly minister to them, bring them into the millennial kingdom. He will faithfully bring forth justice he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law so we find a blending of first advent themes and second advent themes and they all 
come blended together in this Isaiah prophecy. Now, let's relax a little bit and remember that this is not weird. Okay? I'll draw more pictures for you. Back to here, back to there. Because... New paper. How about that? I grew up in Washington State, and uh, I have always supported the uh, logging industry, and I don't mind uh, another sheet of paper. Trees are simply a renewable crop like any other crop. It takes longer to grow a tree, but nevertheless, they do grow. All right. Now, we are spoiled because... Here we are in the church, and we can look back to first advent, and we can look forward to second advent. So we are terribly spoiled. Not only do we look back and look forward, but we have a New Testament revelation that gives us the distinctions between first advent and second advent. We know that at first advent he came to suffer. We know at first advent he came not to be served, but to serve. He came in humility. He came to die on the cross. He came to accomplish our redemption. We know that there are still things he hasn't done yet, and that's coming up in what we call second advent. That he will come and instead of, and guess what? When he comes again, it's not going to be a baby in the manger routine. He's never doing that routine again. This time the heavens are going to open and the Lord himself descends uh, in, in battlefield glory, riding a white horse, his robe dipped in blood. All right. We can start singing glory, glory, hallelujah, and the saints go marching on and he's treading the wine press of the fierce wrath of God Almighty, trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored and, and it gets real uh, militant and, and very uh, battle-oriented. That's our perspective, because we are church-age believers. Now, rewind 4,000 years. Come back here, put yourself in Isaiah's, cho- in Isaiah's cho- shoes. Okay, Back here when Israel was the steward, they couldn't look back and look forward. What were they doing? They were looking forward only. And they had no distinction between first advent and second advent. They were looking forward to a Messiah with no distinction between the suffering Messiah and the reigning Messiah. And so many passages, this one included, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, many of these passages that we have looked at and we'll look at again, many of these passages will bland elements from both Advents. As if they were one conceived event. They bear no uh, hint to the fact that there are two events separated by over 2,000 years. Not a clue. For many reasons. Can you think of any? Can you think of why it was that the Old Testament prophets had no clue that this 2,000 year gap was going to be here and that all of these Messiah promises were going to be split into two uh, time frames? Any ideas? 
Mystery of the church. Absolutely. That's one great big reason. This church was a mystery. This church was withheld. There was no information given pertaining to the church in the Old Testament. A total mystery hidden in Christ. Not revealed to the Old Testament prophets. Not a glimmer of it revealed to the angels or anybody else. That's a big item. But there's something else. There remains the potential... uh, Certainty. Now, keep in mind, God is absolute sovereign. God has a grace eternal plan. God has issued forth the divine decrees that that are not thwarted. All right. But at the same time, human beings make choices. Now, stop to consider. If Israel had not rejected their Messiah... If Israel had not crucified the Christ, in other words, if they had received their king, what would have happened? You think they would have waited 2,000 years for the kingdom? John the Baptist said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? And now, stop to consider the possibility. No, it didn't happen, and we know it didn't happen, but... That's because we're looking at it with hindsight. Stop to consider the possibility that first advent, second advent could indeed have been one great big event. That Israel would have accepted their king. That Israel would have been humbled and repentant and been regathered into the land and, and that these two events might have been one great big event. Okay? Now, that's not what happened. And God knew that's not what would happen. God planned for the church from eternity past. God knew that Israel would reject their king. God knew all this stuff. But when he's giving messages to his prophets and the prophets are giving messages to the people and the prophets are saying the king is coming, the prophets don't have a clue that people are going to reject the message and there's a 2,000 year gap. The prophets are giving the message of the coming Christ. Okay? Things to chew on. Things to chew on. John the Baptist said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He did not say the kingdom of heaven is 2,000 years from now after you crucify your Christ and after the church comes in and everything else happens. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, we will return to this because this is too important to just pass over. So next week we'll come back. We'll, we'll remind ourselves of what that Isaiah 61 passage is. That's another one like 42. It's got... Some first advent elements, some second advent elements. But it's a good illustration because Jesus taught from that passage in Luke chapter 4. And so we can see what the passage said, how Jesus taught from it, and we can see where that breakdown occurs. So we'll deal with that next week. And then we'll look at Mark's account, Luke's account, and proceed from there into episode 16, which is the calling of the uh, of the 12 apostles. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for supplying uh, health to and uh, some kind of clarity of thought to teach a Bible class this morning. We trust that your word will not return void, that it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Pray that it would be a source of encouragement, challenge, and blessing for all who have heard. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.